What will be your greatest life work? Greatest thing that you'll give your life to? Certainly you can think about the importance of work in the home and the very important work that God gives us in the home. Think about how much time we spend in the home. Think about how you've been shaped positively in whatever home you grew up in. Children, think about the home now that your parents here, members of this church, giving themselves to growing with Jesus, the important work they do there and seeking to raise you. That's important work. What about the important work in the workplace? You spend a lot of time there in your vocation as a student, wherever it is that God has you right now, there's important work to be done to seek to, to honor God and to be faithful to Him. But Christian, what about your work in the local church? What about the work that we all share in here as members of this church? What about the important task that's been given to every local church by the Lord Jesus Himself? I mean, after all, there is a task, there is a mission, there is a duty given to every Christian, to every local church, both young and old, uh, newer believers and those who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, a responsibility, a joy that we've been given by the Lord Jesus Himself. In fact, this work of the local church, namely what we'll see this morning, making disciples, it's to encompass every aspect of your life, all of your life's work, all of your work at home, all of your work in, in the workplace, all of your life to be given to glorifying Jesus and seeking to obey Him by making disciples. Now we read about that work, commonly referred to as the Great Commission, in our passage this morning with some of the final words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. If you want to turn with me now to the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, if you want to use that pew Bible in front of you, you can take that pew Bible and use it. Turn to page 835, page 835. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 this morning. A passage commonly referred to as the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Let me read through this short passage as we begin our time together. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Well, the main idea that I want us to see in Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20 through 20 is this. In Christ, we receive confidence and comfort to obey His commission. It's the main idea. In Christ, we receive confidence and comfort to obey His commission. Well, as we finish out the spring here, we head into a, a two-part sermon series on the mission of the church. So today, Matthew 28, two weeks from today, Lord willing, will be in Acts chapter 1. And this morning, we look at a passage commonly referred to as the Great Commission. A, a commission is an instruction. 
a command, a duty, the Great Commission. Now, uh, you see this heading most likely in your copy of the Bible. Uh, This isn't a a phrase or title that Jesus gave. This, as far as we know, or the apostles gave. I, I read this week a little research. It turns out possibly this could be due to a Dutch missionary in the 1600s named Justinian von Wells, though Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, was the one known uh, to really make this phrase popular. And we would do well to consider the Great Commission this morning as we think about the ministry and the work and the responsibility of this local church. As we go through these verses this morning, I want us to consider three parts of what we see in the Great Commission. Three parts, confidence, commission, comfort. There's three words, confidence, commission, comfort. Let's start in verse 18, the first part of what we see this morning, confidence. Before we jump into the commission, let's consider the the setting of this Great Commission. If you look back to verse 16, we see that the 11 disciples, so minus Judas Iscariot, they go to see the risen Jesus. Now, the observation here that only 11 of Jesus' original disciples remain, that gives us both a warning and it gives us encouragement. I think you may see the warning, right? They're one man down. Judas Iscariot, he betrayed Jesus, turned away from following Jesus, one who spent three years walking with Jesus, seeing his his life, observing Jesus, and he turned away from Jesus, ended up taking his own life, self-murder, no longer with Jesus. But the warning here is that not all who profess to have a relationship with Jesus truly possess a relationship with Jesus. Simply put, not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is truly following Jesus. I mean, earlier on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not all who claim the name of Jesus, not all who call themselves Christians, truly possess a relationship with Jesus. You see, faith is seen in following Jesus. Judas no longer following him. There's a, a warning here. Test to see if indeed you are in the faith. Hey, membership in a local church is one way that we do that because it's not just you proclaiming to be a Christian. It's a body of believers that is affirming your profession of faith in Jesus. And should you ever fall out of line with the gospel, meaning if you should ever start to live in unrepentant sin, there's a body that would love you enough to call attention to that. So there's great comfort in the membership of this local church and the fellowship that we share, that we're truly guarding one another and seeking to watch over one another. There's a a warning here in this passage with that small detail, but there's also encouragement that all who truly believe, 
who indeed possess a relationship with Jesus, will persevere until the end. The the encouragement here, there's a picture of perseverance. Eleven disciples continue on. Eleven whose lives will be in danger if they continue to follow Jesus. I mean, what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them if they keep following him, yet they continue on. So certainly we can take caution at, at one who's no longer with them, but what about the eleven? who by God's grace are persevering, who are walking on. Jesus was killed for proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Their lives would be in danger as well, and yet, by the grace of God, they persevere. So the scene begins in verse 16, that after the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, the 11 disciples travel to Galilee to meet with Jesus. And this meeting, it wasn't random. Jesus himself had directed the disciples to Galilee. Even before he died, back in chapter 26, verse 32, Jesus predicted all of this would happen. He would die, that he would rise again on the third day, and he told them that he would go before them to Galilee. Who else does that? Predicts their death and says, I'm going to go before you to Galilee after I rise from the dead. We also read earlier in this chapter, back in verse 7, here in chapter 28, that, that angels directed the women that came to the empty tomb. And then the risen Lord Jesus himself in chapter 28, verse 10, directed the women to go and to tell his disciples to meet him at Galilee. And so the 11 return to Galilee and they meet the risen Lord Jesus. Now let's just stop right there. If you've been in church so long that you just read over that, okay, yeah, they're going to meet the risen Lord Jesus. This is crazy. They're going to have a meeting with someone who died and then got up from the dead. This is is anything but normal. This is anything but just a, hey, we have this on the calendar. Here's a meeting we've got today. We're going to go meet with the risen Lord Jesus. There is nothing normal about this. Who else dies? And gets up from the dead just like he told his disciples he would do before he died. And then we're going to meet up. Jesus is the only one to die, to rise from the dead on his own power, and to never die again. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to know that's why we're Christians. We worship a risen, living Savior. We find hope in Jesus. There's no one like Him. All that we believe and all that we give ourselves to finds its source in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no one like Him. Truly, this is the Son of God who's defeated death and Satan and scored a victory there. So continuing on in verse 17, when the disciples, when they see the risen Lord Jesus, they worship Jesus. They see Him. They recognize, and this is a physical body, and they worship Jesus. In fact, their worship of Jesus demonstrates they understood Jesus was more than merely a man. Their worship, ascribing worship to him, proclaims he indeed is God. This is Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God. Now, we may be surprised to read what's said next in verse 17. But some doubted. The only other time this word is used in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, when Jesus was walking on the water 
and called to his disciple Peter to come out and join him in walking on the water. Jesus said to Peter then, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? As Peter started to take his eyes off Jesus and started to sink. The, the word used here for doubt, like it's used there in Matthew 14, verse 31, it can mean hesitate. Think about doubt in this context as hesitating. This is not intellectual unbelief. Here in this context, it's hesitating. So it's like Peter trying to walk on water, but he hesitated. Matthew doesn't explain who hesitates here among the eleven or why it is that they hesitate, but evidently some were slower to respond than others. They were hesitating. Perhaps some were unsure of how to respond, what they, what they were seeing there of Jesus. Perhaps they were just unsure and they hesitated in the moment. And it may seem confusing here. How do worship and doubt sit side by side? They, they do. And you may wonder why. Well, we see here that, that Scripture, it gives us the truth. What Matthew reports in his gospel, he reports honestly. They worshiped him. Some doubted. He didn't omit that detail. He didn't try to hide it. In fact, he, he recorded it. Nothing was cleaned up to make the disciples look bold and to make them look strong. But what's magnified as great is not their faith, but rather the object of their faith. The risen Lord Jesus Christ exalted, not the faith of the disciples. And we see faith and joy and hesitation all present here. And maybe that's more familiar than you would guess at first. I mean, I mean, Christian, how do you see this in your life? You trust Jesus. Your faith is in Him. You believe in Him. You know His love, His sacrificial love, laying His life down to die on the cross. Your joy is found in Him. Your joy is found in His salvation that He's given to you. Yet far too often, you and I might find ourselves hesitating to trust Him hesitating to follow Him, hesitating to obey His Word, hesitating and glancing at the world around us and the glory of this fading, passing world rather than looking intently to Jesus Christ. Far too often you may find yourself hesitating to trust His provision for your present, hesitating to trust His provision for your future. It's a great prayer to pray. Help my unbelief. Help me trust you more. Jesus met his disciples in their moment of hesitation. And I share all of this because the beautiful context of verse 18, how he met them in his hes their hesitation was to point to his authority. This was comfort and confidence that he brought them. The authority of Jesus, it's the foundation of this great commission. I mean, notice how often the word all is repeated here in verses 18 through 20. All authority, all nations, all I have commanded you, I am with you always. Here Jesus Christ shows his expansive rule over everything. So the foundation of the great commission is what we see in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The authority of Jesus brings confidence 
to his people. He is the name that is above every name. Confidence and and hope and strength and wisdom is found in the name of Jesus. So don't skip over verse 18 to get to the commission of verse 19. Here in verse 18 we read, confidence that we need as Christians if indeed we're going to be faithful to this commission. So before we get to the commands, before we get to the imperative, look at what Jesus himself has indicated. All authority in every realm, heaven and on earth, has been given to him. And you may hear this and wonder, well, didn't Jesus always have this authority? And after all, he's the eternal son of God. He's always existed. Didn't he always have this authority? What does he mean now that it's been given to him? Yes, Jesus always had supreme authority. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, we can read there that Jesus was there at creation, that all things were created by him and for him. He's the eternal son of God. And the gospel of Matthew, even as you read about his earthly ministry, Jesus showed his authority clearly time and time again. He showed his authority over creation. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who do the wind and waves obey? God. Truly, this must be the Son of God. He showed his authority over sickness and death. He was causing lame people to get up and walk again, blind people to see again, bringing dead people back to life. Who has authority over sickness and death? Truly, this must be the Son of God. He was demonstrating this authority that he's always had, even in his earthly ministry. But prior to the resurrection, he veiled that authority in his human frame. Having died on the cross to pay for sin, rising from the dead on the third day, he defeated Satan, sin, and death. He accomplished what he came down to earth to do. You see, all authority being given to Jesus in heaven and on earth highlights that Jesus defeated Satan. That's what he came down from heaven to do, to defeat Satan and his war against God and all of humanity. Jesus was sent down to earth to dethrone Satan. He came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. He scored the victory once and for all by laying his life down on the cross and getting up from the dead. So he came to die, to humble himself, and that time of humiliation came to an end at the resurrection. That's what he means when he says, all authority has been given to me. It's similar to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Well, it's important not to skip over this and just to jump into the commands because I get you. It's exciting jumping into going to the nations and making disciples and giving your, your life to something for the glory of God that's bigger than yourself. That's exciting, but don't skip over this exciting truth, this, this indicative in verse 18. Because all authority being given to Jesus gives confidence to you, Christian. Gives confidence to you found not in yourself, not in your own efforts, not in your own intellect, not in your own determination, not in your own skill. Confidence found in the holy name of Jesus. The confidence we need as Christians that we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. 
We fight from the victory of Jesus, meaning the battle's already been won. The greatest work that needs to be done has already been accomplished. If you skip over that when it comes to mission, when it comes to the mission of the church, when it comes to making disciples in the home, when it comes to making disciples among the nations, if you skip over this fact, the greatest work that needs to be done has already been accomplished. The finished work of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, risen from the dead, brings confidence to Christians. Well, the second part we find in verses 19 through 20a, commands. So first we saw confidence, now we see commands. I love the sandwich here in this passage. Jesus begins with the basis for the commission. He ends in verse 20 with strength for the commission and sandwiched in between are commands. He commissions them to a great task starting in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Four elements we see here in the Great Commission. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach. It's four elements that we see here. The main verb or the main command is not typically the most obvious one. You may read this and the word go may stand out initially. That's a very important part, going to the nations. That's an important supporting part of this commission. It's important. It's necessary. But the main command, the main thrust of the Great Commission is to make disciples. It's the main thrust of what we see here. So there's three subordinate participles that explain how. How do you make disciples? Well, go, baptize, teach. The object of all of this, the nations, Israel and the entire Gentile world, world, from Israel out. Jesus came to Israel first, but the view has always been all the earth, the nations. And finally, the declaration of the authority of Jesus and the promise of His ongoing presence supports the commission. So let's break this down, starting with the main command, make disciples. The commission, simply put, is to make disciples. There are a lot of other great things we can do as a church, good things we can do as a church, good things you can give your life to as a Christian. What we must do, what this local church is about, is making disciples. Jesus gave us a mission. He gave us a task. He gave us the confidence that we we need in all of this, that authority has been given to Him, all authority, and therefore we're to go and make disciples. So so what is a disciple? Uh, Disciples are, are converts who grow into spiritual maturity. So someone who by God's grace has put their faith in Jesus Christ and is growing and following Jesus. This word disciple is used 272 times in the New Testament. And it describes the New Testament believer. So if you're a believer, you're following Jesus. If you truly possess a relationship with Christ, you are growing in your relationship with Christ. And a disciple most fundamentally is is a learner. Learning a new way of life. A way of life that 
pleases God. A way of life that increasingly seeks to trust God and His promises. A way of life that seeks to honor Him. A way of life that doesn't live merely for this present world, but that lives for the glory of King Jesus. D.A. Carson put it like this, disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus's teaching. Well, who's this task given to? In the immediate context, the 11 disciples that remain. But it wouldn't stop with them. Their lives are going to be somewhat short. This mission from the apostles deposited into local churches. We see the the unfolding of Matthew 28 in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And what they did is they went and they planted churches. They proclaimed the gospel for those who put their faith in Jesus. They baptized them and folding them into local churches. And these local churches would be these entities formed by the Lord Jesus Christ that would make disciples who proclaim the good news of Jesus. So making disciples, simply put, it's the ministry and the mission of the local church. I mean, where else would you be baptized and taught to obey everything that Christ commanded? That's what happens in the local church. Well, how do Jesus' followers, how do they make disciples? Well, that's what's addressed with the three parts, go, baptize, and teach. Those are supporting the, the main command of making disciples. So first, Jesus' disciples go. They don't sit back and respond. They don't sit back and wait. They, they go to all the nations to seek to make disciples. They take the initiative to go. So Jesus has all authority, and so we go to all nations. It's always been God's plan to form a people from the nations. Think about our, our sermon series back in Genesis, chapter 12, verse 3. God's promise to Abram back in Genesis 12 was to make him a father of many nations. And that's kind of referred to often as the Great Commission of the Old Testament. God's promise of what He was going to do with Abraham fulfilled in Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection, forming a people from all of the nations whom God has created. Jesus died, in other words, to call people, to call disciples from all the world. From every tribe and tongue and people group, Jesus came and He died for the world. He came to bring in disciples from all nations on earth, and therefore every local church must have a concern for the nation. So it's not like, well, there's a few churches in town, and they're really pumped up about missions, or like, hey, there's a few members of this church, they really love missions, that's kind of like their deal, their cup of tea. No, every Christian, every local church should be concerned for the glory of God amongst the nations. It's why we pray for the nations every Sunday morning. So we're about to finish, I don't know when it'll be, but we're about to finish our third time praying through every nation on earth. We've done that twice in our pastoral prayers. Every nation on earth, praying for them. We took three this morning, Lord willing, three next week, just keeping on praying. Places, some of those countries none of us have ever been to, and some of them none of us will ever go to. We don't even know anybody there. Some of them would be considered closed countries, meaning Christians aren't welcome there. It's illegal to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we pray for those nations because we understand, in view of Jesus, there is no such thing as a closed country. All authority has been given to Him. He reigns and He rules. The good news will get there. Those who may try to oppose the gospel and hinder it ultimately will not be 
successful, maybe for a time, but Jesus reigns, he will get the glory. The gospel is going out. We go and we proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the nations. That's implied here, that making disciples, it's more than just evangelism. It's more than just giving ourselves to, Jesus could have said here, go and evangelize the nations. But he said, go and make disciples. That implies evangelism, but doesn't stop there. It means there's follow-up and follow-through in making disciples. But let's not skip over this. Sometimes I think evangelism and discipling kind of gets pitted against one another in ways that are wrong. They go together. So before somebody's a disciple, they must be evangelized. They must hear the good news of Jesus Christ and be called to repent and believe in Him. And after somebody repents and believes in Jesus and they're baptized, they're discipled and taught to obey Jesus. Think about Jesus. His disciples, He discipled them in the context of evangelism. That was their very training and being raised up was Him proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. So, Oakhurst Baptist Church, if we're going to make disciples, we must be active in evangelism. I pray every Sunday morning for evangelism, opportunities for us to share our faith. Think about evangelism. We need to be bold. We need to be urgent. But we need to be joyful. We, we talk about what we delight in. I had a, a meal yesterday with a group of friends, and uh, we were delighting in this delicious barbecue meal. And uh, for months and months, I've heard from Pastor Johnny and Pastor Jonathan about this legendary place in the metropolis of Peachland, North Carolina, called John G's Barbecue. It's only open one day a week. It's on Saturdays. That's the day that it's open because they only have to operate one day a week to make all the revenue they need. Uh, they sell out of their food every Saturday. They open at 11 a.m., and people start lining up at 8 a.m. We got down there about 8.45 and had our lawn chairs, and we were just seated there for the next, like, two-plus hours. Uh, we had a football and threw that around for a little while, and we were just hanging out in line to get barbecue at this place. Apparently, that's how good this was. I, we were talked into going to do this. And I heard Johnny and Jonathan talk about this for so long, how amazing this barbecue was. I think Johnny said it was better than the Texas brisket he had in his hometown of Texas. That was enough to sell me to want to go there and be a part of it. And we got in finally. I think we finally got in at like 11.45. By the time the line moved and we got there, and we got our brisket, and we got the Cheerwine sausage link, and we got all the sides, the jalapeno cheese grits and the mac and cheese, everything you could want. I'm making you hungry right now, right? <laughs> and we sat down at the table, and there was a bunch of grunting <laughs> and just delighting. And like, wow, this is amazing. Right? Everything they had proclaimed about this meal, it was true. And I was sharing in this joy and this delight with them. Well, friends, a meal that is gone, and let's be honest, after like 20 minutes, we couldn't keep eating. And in fact, I texted the guys at dinner and said, you know, I could go to bed without dinner and I'm fine. I'm just stuffed and I'm full. A meal that's kind of with you and it's gone and you move on to the next day. As much joy and delight, as much fun as that can be. Think about the joy that we know as Christians in knowing the living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. If we could talk about how much we love meals, how much we love our best football team, if we can talk about the NBA playoffs and how excited we are about those things, if you can stand around a water cooler on Monday morning in your office and talk about a wonderful restaurant you visited that weekend, how much more can we and should we proclaim the goodness and the joy and the delight of knowing Jesus Christ and wanting those around us to know Him? 
We know that not all will receive that as joy and love. We know by looking at Jesus and his disciples, that will come with rejection. It will come with even sometimes hatred for the name of Jesus Christ. But how can we help but share the good news of Jesus with those around us? Oakhurst Baptist Church, let's pray and ask God for more joy in Jesus that overflows into sharing Christ with those around us. We go, and then second, we baptize. We see they're baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the command is to be baptized in the singular name, not in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the singular name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in the name of the triune God. And here again, we see the deity of Jesus. He is the Son of God. See, Christian baptism, it's immersion in water. We're going to celebrate that in just a moment here. It's immersion in water. Baptism signifies being united to Jesus in His death and burial and resurrection. Your faith is in Jesus. This comes after people are converted. So we read here, baptizing them. Well, who is the them? Disciples. Disciples of all nations. Baptize them. So go make disciples of all nations and then baptize them. As people put their faith in Jesus Christ, bring them into the fellowship of the church. And that's why we only accept in this church, and it's just alike in all Baptist churches, we only accept baptism that comes after you've put your faith in Jesus. We don't see anywhere described or prescribed in the pages of the Bible that babies should be baptized, that babies should receive this. We see that it's for disciples, for those who make a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus himself commanded here in Matthew 28. And if you're interested in being baptized, you've not yet been baptized upon a profession of faith in Jesus, talk to any of our pastors at the door afterwards. We'd love to talk with you more about baptism and membership in this local church and what it would look like for you to follow Jesus in baptism. Well, consider how baptism is a picture of discipleship. So how is it that we go up into this tank here, we fill up this tank that has been here since 1953, and you go under the water, like what does that have to do with discipleship. Well, Romans 6 verse 4 is a passage I read every time we have a baptism. Romans 6 4, we get a picture of discipleship and baptism. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection of union with Jesus. Baptism is renouncing your old way of life and professing faith in Jesus, a a new way of life of following Him. The visible act of going under the water speaks of our identifying with Jesus in His death, where He laid down His life willingly as a substitute, a, a sacrifice for sin, taking death on our part. So baptism is proclaiming what Jesus did. Certainly it's a profession of faith. But if anyone tells you a believer's baptism, that's like professing what you've done. Well, not at all. Death and burial, resurrection hardly smacks of self-righteousness. It speaks of what God has done in, in Jesus. When you go under the water, you're saying, my faith is in Jesus. He died, and I too have died to my sin by the grace of 
God. The visible act of rising again out of the water is a picture of new life in Christ given to everyone who believes in, in Jesus. It speaks that the, the past has been removed, a future gain. All of our sins been forgiven, filled with the Holy Spirit of God to walk in newness of life. It is God's declaration of what He's done and what He's secured through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a visible sign that shows by God's grace we have been made a disciple of Jesus. Go, baptize, and finally teach. Third part, teaching. There in the first part of verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, so baptize disciples and fold them into the church and teach them to obey Christ's commands. The one who has all authority to call disciples from all nations. These disciples are to be taught to observe all that Christ has commanded. And just like baptism, this teaching happens in your life in the local church. Local churches, is where, that's where disciples are to be taught all that Christ has commanded. Now, you may hear this and say the commands of Christ. Well, what is that highlighting? Is that just highlighting like the red letters that I see in my New Testament? Well, that's not what it's saying. It's not suggesting that we disregard the rest of Scripture, certainly not saying we disregard the commands of the Old Testament, but rather, earlier on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus taught He has fulfilled what the Old Testament law looked forward to. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, the Old Testament pointed to Him. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we certainly read the words of Jesus and the commands of Jesus because that's where we see that the gospel manifested, the Son of God manifested. The book of Acts is all about the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The teaching letters that we see from Romans and, and on, they're all letters that explain the gospel, who Jesus is, what He's done, and therefore how you are to live. And the book of Revelation talks about the completion or the consummation, the end when Jesus Christ returns to earth. Simply put, the whole book, all of the Bible, it's about Jesus. Jesus is exalted from Genesis to Revelation. That's why we practice expositional preaching here in this church. We think it's the best way to pursue this church being faithful in the Great Commission. God gave us His Word in books, and we just go through books of the Bible to help us learn more about what God has said and what He's done in Jesus Christ, both Old Testament and New. So we need to be taught all that Christ has commanded, but also teach them to what? To observe. Observe means keep, to guard, to obey, know what Christ has commanded, grow in obeying what Christ has commanded. To be a disciple is to obey the teaching of Jesus. In other words, the goal of Christian teaching is not merely gaining intellectual knowledge. The goal of Christian teaching is life transformation, growing more and more in the image of Jesus. You see, Jesus' teaching involves content that is to be obeyed. And that's why you can't separate Christ from the Christian life. If anyone tries to separate Christ from the Christian life, you can't do I don't know how you get through the pages of the Bible and suggest that you do so. It doesn't even happen here in the Great Commission, the last words of Jesus in Matthew 28. 
We have Jesus and the comfort he brings connected to commands, a commission, a responsibility, a duty, a task. Uh, Jesus doesn't separate those, and we shouldn't either. James Montgomery Boyce, he put it like this, we're to teach them everything Christ commanded. Today, we see what seems to be the opposite. Instead of striving to teach all Christ commanded, many try to eliminate as much of his teaching as possible, concentrating on an easily comprehended, unobjectionable core of teaching. We're to follow Jesus. We're to pay attention to God's Word. Give ourselves to learning the Word of God. I'm so thankful for our senior saints who have been here for decades and decades, saints that are in their 80s, that continue to want to know Jesus and grow more deeply and follow them. We would do well to follow their example. Finally, the last part in verse 20b, the last part of this passage, we find comfort. Comfort. You may read this commission. You may have a couple of different responses. On one hand, you may think, what a, what a task. Like, what a, what a joyful task. We should feel that. Go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, what a joyful pursuit to give our, our lives to, to following Jesus for the glory of God, to make disciples of all nations. But you may feel on the other hand, like, what a task. The, the magnitude of this commission. It is both a joyful task and difficult. And even as a, a pastor, I read this it's weighty. Wow, teach them all that Christ has commanded. That, that's a big responsibility. That, that is a big pursuit that we're to give ourselves to in a local church. Well, in verse 20, the commission ends, indeed the gospel of Matthew ends, not with a command, but with a promise. A promise of comfort in the very presence of Jesus. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Jesus came down to earth to be with his people, Emmanuel, God with us. What Old Testament saints longed and looked forward to, we see here in the Gospel of Matthew, was made manifest, revealed. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came to be with his people. And he came to do exactly why he was sent, to die on the cross as a substitute to pay for sin. He rose from the dead on the third day, just like he said he would. And later on, he ascended up to heaven, reigning there this morning, the right hand of the throne of God. And for those who have repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we have this hope and we have this promise. He is with us. He's still with us. Physically, he rose from the dead. Physically, he ascended back up to heaven. Physically, we look forward to the day he returns back down to earth. But spiritually, he's with every believer right now. He's with us always, meaning the whole of every day, every moment, he's with you, always. And as Jesus' disciples, we need this comfort. We need this assurance found in Jesus that Christ is with us. When you are tempted to doubt, when you're tempted to hesitate in following Jesus, He's with you. He doesn't forsake you or turn away from you. Every day that we live, every breathing moment, when you're awake, 
when you're sleeping, when you're physically healthy, when you're sick, when you're young, and when you're old, He's always with you. When you're at church, He's with you. When you're at home, He's with you. When you're at work, He's with you. He's with you in every moment. In the midst of every trial and difficulty, He's with you. In the midst of every temptation, He's with you. Every high, He's with you. Every low, He's with you. Every hard day, He's with you. Every good day, He is with you. In every fear and in every failure, Christ is with you. There's no one like Him. What a friend you have in Jesus. Even your best friend, even your family members, we have to say goodbye to them one day. This life does not last forever. Even the people that know us best and love us most, we just have a temporary relationship with them here on earth. But Christ is with us now in this life and forevermore in glory. He's here with us from new life to next life. From the moment we're converted to the next life with Him forever in heaven. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, do not mistake Christianity to simply be a set of moral standards. This passage here, this short passage, tells us more that our faith in Jesus, what we're proclaiming to you, it brings us into a relationship with Jesus, a spiritual union with Jesus, where He lives inside of us, where He is with us, that any good thing you may see in us, any act of obedience, any act of kindness, any act of mercy is entirely due to His presence in our lives. Yet not I, but through Christ in me do we walk this side of glory. If you come this morning and you don't know Jesus, you can know Him today. You can have that presence with you. You can be changed from the inside out. I would call you today to turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus. We will love to talk more with you about that. If you stop by this door or any of these doors afterwards, pastors will be there. Any member that brought you this morning that invited you, talk to them more about what it would look like to trust in Jesus and follow Him today. While we look forward and hope to that day that's surely coming when Christ returns or when we go to be with Him in glory, that day we fully will know Christ. We will fully live in His presence we get a taste of that presence now. What a life. What a joy. There's no better life than this. A life walking with Jesus. And His presence continues on to the end of the age, meaning the end of the age of the, the church, the end of history and time as we know it, meaning until Christ physically returns to earth, He's with you. And however long this age Last, which I hope it comes to a close soon. I hope Jesus returns soon. But however long it lasts, the church is to be on mission, given to this task, and we find confidence and comfort that Jesus is always present. Everything He calls us to, He supplies us with the power and the love and the grace that we need to image His faithfulness. He is with us, and Christian, He is for us. Jesus has all authority. His followers are to make disciples of all nations by teaching all that Jesus commands. And He is with us always. In Christ, we receive confidence 
and we receive comfort to obey His commission. Let's ask for His help. Let's do that now. Father, we pray that You would turn our eyes and turn our minds away from ourselves. You turn us away from our own trouble, our own fear and failures, our anxieties we have about this life, and we pray that as those who've put our faith in You, that we would find confidence and comfort in Jesus that would produce joy and produce deeper faith and obedience to You. Lord, we ask that You would draw near to us. Even as we come now to celebrate baptism, may You remind every member of this church of the day that we were baptized, of the grace that You showed us in saving us and the grace that You show us every day to sustain us. We ask that we would trust You more. We ask You to grow our joy in You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.